Giants, one of the most spectacular vistas on this continent, any continent. Downtown San Francisco in the background, and we zoom into Candlestick Park in the southeastern corner of this city. For the first time in 27 years, a World Series game will be played in Candlestick Park. The Battle of the Bay continues. Game three of the 1989 World Series, the Oakland Athletics against the San Francisco Giants. I'm Al Michaels. Welcome to game three. It's been dominant Oakland pitching, of course, in the first two games. So Roger Craig has made some changes in the Giants lineup. Ken Oberkfell, the great pinch hitter, will start at third base. Matt Williams moves from thir third base to shortstop. Jose Uribe is on the bench. Pat Sheridan takes over for Candy Maldonado in right field. Now the Giants, of course, are faced with a formidable task, having to win four or five, in essence, to win the world title. It has become less uncommon, though, in recent years for teams to overcome a two-love deficit. Most recently, it was done by the New York Mets in 1986 against the Boston Red Sox, and it was done the year before as well, in 1985, by Kansas City against St. Louis. So the Giants tonight will be sending Don Robinson to the mound, and for Oakland, it will be Bob Welch, and there's no designated hitter in effect in the National League Park. Let me turn now to Tim McCarver, and, you know, Tim, we talked to... Game one, the final score was 5 nothing, but there was a key early play involving Terry Kennedy dropping a throw from Will Clark at the plate. We go back to game two, the score was 5-1, to one, but there were two key plays early in that one as well. Well, you don't often think of key plays in a 5-1 to one ball game, but let's go back to the top of the third inning. Will Clark the batter, the Giants have not had the lead in these two games. A 3-2 count, a split finger fastball by Mike Moore, pounced on by Terry Steinbach, the Oakland catcher, but look at the tough throw that he had to complete the play with Brett Butler running between him and Clark. But flash forward to the bottom of the fourth inning. Dave Parker barely, by inches, just misses a home run. Candy Maldonado with the hesitation, allowing Jose Canseco to score, and he fails to get Dave Parker at second base. So the Oakland A's take... take I'll tell you what, we have an Two-two pitch to Edgar Martinez down. A fastball swung on, missed a deep center field. 
From high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauly's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pop, where we collect ball players. And their stories. What's juicy, y'all? Want to welcome all you seam heads into our little podcast bubble this week here at BKP, where we merge baseball with history and retell the stories that have changed our beautiful game. And in some instances, like this week's topic, the future of our great country. Hello, everybody. Jake the Snake Robinson here. Happy New Year to all of you in the baseball universe. I hope everyone came through the uh, festivities safe as the world is now settling into making the first footprints of the new year. BKP is no different as I've been chomping at the bit to get these new slate of shows rolling. want to thank the always expanding audience for walking this path with me this past year. And it was a very successful year for me. And the show, personally, as I told you all the metrics last week of how the show was uh, taken off in the past 12 months. And it's all because of my faithful Seamhead Army, you. And I will never take it for granted. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. And real quick, uh, just to expound on those numbers, I gave you on the Joe DiMaggio show last week. I got a message from Google Chrome last week telling me that uh, Backwards K-Pod is now globally... In the top 10% of pod shows. Globally. Like the world. And folks, I'm truly humbled. I say it all the time. I have the best audience of Seamans around. I, I, I feel like I have, you know, the symbiotic, symbiotic relationship with you good brothers and sisters. Haters love to tell me that baseball is a dying star. Why are you doing a baseball podcast show? But you guys prove to me every week that's not true. That's not the case. This game still has a heartbeat, and it ain't faint. Not as loud as it once was in the American conscience, but it still pumps blood. And the sport is going nowhere but forward. My goal is to leave a voice, an audio account of baseball, the future gens, spark that fire in someone, anyone. Spark that imagine, create a fan, maybe even a baller at some point. I'm not skilled in many things in life. Not very bright in my private life. Uh, you know, I, I kind of have the personality of a dead moth. The, the, the one thing I know in life is baseball. And I truly believe we all have a purpose in life. I, I believe that to my core. There, there's no doubt in my mind that since I was a young boy of five years old collecting baseball cards and devouring all the stats and info, uh, baseball was my calling. It, it was my life. I was surely predestined to preach the gospel of baseball to the world. It's not even a debate. Now, originally, I, you know, I thought I was meant to play shortstop for my beloved Orioles, but uh, this fucker Andy Brandy threw a fucking mid-70s slurve at me when I was like 17. Yeah, that forever killed that fantasy. Banished me to the culinary arts field. But here I am. I'm doing what I've always dreamed about 
And that's preaching the history of the game to the masses around the globe. We all have a purpose. All of you have helped me to reach mine. Being in the top 10% in anything in the world. That's an amazing feeling. So, thank you. Let's continue to grow. And let's crack that top 5% this year. And it is incredibly hard to reach these heights without name brand recognition. And not only am I proud, but you, the audience, should be proud. Because without you, it doesn't happen. So, thank you. Now, I'm never going to charge you for the uh, free uh, for the content here at Backwards K Pod. I'm always going to come through with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. Uh, but if you could rate review me as you see fit. I would be most appreciative if you're on the Apple or Spotify or any of these platforms that give you a chance to rate, review, or comment. Please do so as it keeps the show viable and makes the show pop up on more Google search engines and, you know, brings them towards the top. So if you can rate and review, I would totally appreciate that. And I love connecting with you good brothers and sisters. So whenever you want to drop a line to me and the show, I'm accessible, baby. You can email the show backwardskpod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at back underscore K underscore podcast or the granddaddy of them all, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook group page. And we're like a big family there. Back in the day, these shows, you know, these podcast shows, they would have generated, they would have wanted you to generate like this email list from the audience. Well, I don't need that. I got my core all in one place. I'm well thought out, if anything. And nobody wants to answer foreign emails and spam. So just come on into the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook uh, group page, the most comprehensive and interactive page in a book. And before I get into this week's show, come on uh, to YouTube. Check out our channel there. It's uh, Backwards K Pod channel. Uh, I leave audio of all these shows. I put the promo videos out there. And I even got some old interviews with guys like Benny Agbanyani, Kenny Singleton, Ron Robinson, Bill Lee, just to name a few. And that page was a wasteland. It's still kind of a wasteland, a cemetery, but it's starting to pick up as this show gets bigger. And so, you know, if you want to help a good brother out, go on over to Backwards K-Pod YouTube page and subscribe for me. Okay, I got a lot of great feedback on the last show, the Yankee Clipper, uh, Joe and Joe DiMaggio. It seemed like it went over pretty well, actually. Uh, if you haven't heard it yet, go on whatever platform you use for your shows or swing on over to the web page, DiamondSnakeJ.Bobby.com to hear any show or any of them from, you know, any of my shows from the last year. Thank you for the accolades. I, I really enjoyed learning about Joe's story. And Omar out in Chicago uh, dropped me a line. He said, you're doing something different that no one else is doing. We all know the legendary numbers, but the stories of the legend is what makes you different. Thank you for DiMaggio. I knew the numbers, never really knew the story. And, you know, that's what I'm here for. You know, I could be... No, look, man, I can talk baseball for hours, but I, you know, even the current game, you want to sit here and you want to talk about, you know, uh, depth charts and where certain teams are going. I got it all, baby. I can sit here and talk any team with you at any point. But this is different. This show is different. You know, I, I, I kind of, I'm kind of zoned out from all these fucking talking heads who, you know, everybody's got this opinion, that opinion, that opinion. And, uh, you know, this guy's an idiot because he thinks that. I, it's just, it's too much. 
Uh, there's way too much of that. And I prefer to go this way. The historical route. I learn much more. And I'm not inside that bubble where everybody's yelling at each other, calling each other idiots for their opinions. So, with DiMaggio and the first season of PK in the books, I see that catcher is ready to come down. The infielders are now throwing the ball around the infield. So, let's load up that BKP uh, night train time machine. I'm calling all aboard. As we're going to set our navigation for the year 1989. The destination, the San Francisco-Oakland Bay area, as we will be taking a look this week at the now-dubbed Earthquake Series of 1989. And let's start it out this way. For the first time in 33 years, uh, Major League Baseball had a matchup that featured two teams that shared the same regional market. After 47 years of coexisting with one another, another the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland A's, they're set to battle for the game's most prestigious trophy and baseball supremacy when a confluence of once-in-a-lifetime events turned the 1989 World Series into a tragedy and arguably the most anticlimactic series finish ever. And honestly, folks, I don't even think it's arguable. I know in my lifetime, no World Series ever meant so little in the end. That's kind of like what's going on in Buffalo in that football game last night, right? The game doesn't really matter. Human sorrow becomes involved. Who won? Who lost? Who cares? Now, years removed, I can't believe it's going on 34 years, first of all. I find that I do care more. These were two very good teams, and they should both be remembered for that. Going into the 89 series, the Giants hadn't won a pennant in 27 years, but this was a team on the rise. They won the NLS in 1987, and they came one win short of going to the World Series before losing the final two games of the NLCS to the Cardinals of St. Louis. Now, going into 88, expectations are high in San Francisco, but... The Giants fall short of those expectations. And to top it all off, the Giants faithful, they got to sit around and watch those goddamn Dodgers not only take the NOS, but also upset the heavily favored Oakland A's in that series. So, heading into 1989, there's a cautious optimism now. The lineup is anchored uh, by the Pacific uh, Stock Exchange left fielder Kevin Mitchell. And his raw power, as well as, uh, you know, sweet singing, swinging Will Clark. And for those of you who didn't get a, see, a chance to see Will Clark in his, pro- in his prime during these years, probably the sweetest swing in the game at that time until that Griffey kid shows up in the pack Northwest. Will Clark had stroke, baby. He had this uncanny ability to hit for contact as well as power without compromising his sweet side swing. Sad truth is, had Clark, you know, used PEDs, he probably could have built his upper body up and prolonged his career. But Will the Thrill? Yeah, that's an honorable warrior right there. Unlike many of his contemporaries of his day. And his career, as far as PEDs, it's never been questioned. He just aged out like most players did in those days before PEDs. 
And not just PEDs, but also weight training, you know? Kevin Mitchell had been part of the madness. That was the 1986 World Series. When he won a chip with the Mets, he was one of the preeminent power hitters of the late 80s. And the Giants would be rewarded by watching this poorly outfielder win the 1989 NL MVP. And that is what I meant earlier when I said cared. I truly forgot how impactful Mitchell was that year in San Francisco. And let's take a, a look real quick. At Mitchell's numbers here for the Giants. Uh, let's see here. Where's my notes? Kevin Mitchell. 1989, he played in 154 games that year. 640 plate appearances. He scored 100 runs right on the nose. 158 hits, 34 doubles, 6 triples. A 291 average. And a 388 OBP. Uh, 1989, Mitchell led the National League with 47 home runs, 125 RBI, a 635 slug, 1.023 OPS, 345 total bases, 32 uh, intentional walks, and a 192 OPS. Pretty uh, OPS plus. So, pretty impressive. Like I said, you know, he won the NL MVP that year, started out uh, and left at the All-Star Game, and... Just a fantastic season for the big fella. You really forget, you know, that one-two punch of Clark and Kevin Mitchell here. Not bad. Man, those are some pretty good numbers. Uh, the Clark-Mitchell duo, it was supported by center fielder Brett Butler, second baseman Robbie Thompson. They're two solid ball players that, you know, they were steady in offering RBI opportunities to Thrill and Clark, as well as youngster third baseman Matt Williams, who was in his third year with the team. He still liked this unrealized potential. He blasted 18 dogs that year. Um, but that offense was pretty fucking consistent. It finished second in runs scored that year in the National League. Giants manager Roger Craig, he garnered his uh, baseball respect as a pitching coach on a Hall of Fame skipper, Sparky Anderson, in Detroit. Craig ran, uh, Craig ran a tight ship with his staff that year. And he squeezed every ounce of talent he could out of that staff. Staff ace, uh, 40-year-old Rick Russell. He won 17 games with a 2.94 ERA. Scott Geralt, he finished 14-5 with a 2.28. And even Don Robson, um, middle of the rotation guy, contri- contributed 12 wins from uh, the middle of that rotation. At the end of the bully, the Giants had Craig Leffords and Steve Bedrosen. Those two combined for 34, uh, 37 saves that year, and they both had sub-three ERAs. They also had Mike Lacoste, Kelly Downs, who, you know, these two kind of served as spot starters and mid-relief bully arms, and they were more than competent in both of those roles. Collectively, Roger Craig, he massaged and manipulated his staff to the third best ERA in the National League. And out of the 1989 gate, the Giants were plotting their way through mediocrity. As they are 14-15 on May 5th, they then catch fire. They win 10 out of 14. They roll into Memorial, uh, Memorial Day with a 27-21 record. They're tied with Cincinnati in first. And they're just narrowly ahead of the Astros and the Padres in a tight NL West. 
San Francisco would carry that momentum into early summer. They're going 12-3 and from June 9th to June 24th. That hot streak would include taking five or six from the Reds and the Strohs. The Giants led the West by as many as four games before stumbling into the All-Star break. And at this time, the race is beginning to thin out. The Dodgers have bottomed out. The Reds are in distraction mode all summer long. And that's going to end in Pete Rose's banishment from baseball for gambling. And Houston's still there. But the Giants' path to an NL pennant, it's becoming clear. And here's the thing. San Francisco, they didn't dominate that year. But they never fell off the proverbial cliff. And... Giants fans, A's fans as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, please forgive me for uh, referencing Meatball Assorted in your show. But what he used to say is so apropos for the 89 Giants. Every season is split into thirds with the understanding that every single team in baseball is going to win 54 games and every team in baseball is going to lose 54, 54 games. It's Almost 99.9% guaranteed. Now, it's what you do with the remaining 54 games or third of the season that's going to determine your season. And the 1989 Giants, they lived within this law of physics. They just kept it consistent. Not dominant by any stretch, but consistent enough to seal the deal in the end. And even when San Francisco faltered and stumbled that year, the Strohs could not take advantage. So, in Lasorda logic, they did not play that last third of the game, uh, last third of the season as consistent as San Francisco did. The Giants, they're looking for that inspirational lift in August, as well as a lift for the pitching staff. So, they welcome pitcher Dave Drabecki off the DL. He was diagnosed with a tumor in his arm. And he's now on the comeback trail. His first game back, he beats the Reds 5-3. to And it's looking like it's going to be a great story in the making for both the club and Drabecki. In his next start, August 15th, a horrific scene takes place as Drabecki literally breaks his arm in mid-delivery. An absolute stomach turning scene that you can find on your Google machine if you want to see that shit. The spinal break injury would end Rebecca's career and cast the cloud over the surge that the team was now enjoying. And somehow, in retrospect, the dichotomy of tragedy looming over triumph was a, you know, it was kind of foreshadowing for these giants as, you know, we're soon going to see. They continue their consistency and their play and they clinch the West prior to the final weekend of the year. They would meet the Cubbies in the NLCS. Both teams looking for that knockout early. They traded blowouts in the first two games at Wrigley. And then the Giants won three close games at Candlestick Park to win the first pennant in nearly three years. The Giants are headed to the World Series to meet their geographic rival, uh, the Oakland A's, and the two fan bases are on fire. Uh, their first NL pennant, and I'm sorry, I think it's 27 years, not three years. Uh, let me see here. The 1989 A's, um, they had a much different path to AL supremacy. This team, because of circumstance, 
the World Series loss of 1988 and 1990. They're, they never really get recognized for how truly great that team was. They're, they're kind of like the Orioles team in the early 70s. The, the, the Orioles lost to the Mets in 69. They come back, they beat the Reds in 70. They lose to the Pirates in 71. And Roberto Clemente's playing out of his mind. And the Orioles, as great as that team was, they don't get the recognition that they probably should get in a lot of cases. And the A's are kind of the same way. They uh, lose 89, they win 90, and they lose a 91. So kind of the same situation. But the A's were dominant and merciless. And the AL West race was never really a race in 1989. I mean, it was close, but, you know, you just got this feeling during the year that the A's are going to pick this up, and they're just going to run away with it at some point. Uh, they pulled away from the rivals towards the end of the year uh, after the All-Star break. And the AL fans were kind of more concentrating on the exciting AL East race between the star-laden Jays and an Orioles team that had lost their first 21 games in 1988, only to rebound in 1989 as the Why Not Orioles. And it's because of those reasons, as well as the earthquake of 1989, that I feel those A's teams are, are overlooked, but they shouldn't be. Oakland was renowned for having the Bash Brothers of Jose Consenco and Mark McGuire. And I'm an 18-year-old kid living in Maryland. I love that Oakland brand of baseball. Great pitching, and they hit the ball out of the fucking ballpark. I had all the posters in my room. It was an ex- exciting style of play for me as an AL fan in my teenage years. Unfortunately... Kosenko had surgery to remove a hammock bone in his uh, wrist before the season, and he would miss almost two-thirds of the season. And 65 games that year, Jose still batted 17 home runs with 57 RBIs. Big Mac, he, uh, he only had 231, but he also clobbered 33 home runs, had 95 ribs. His power kept the offense afloat, but the A's were going to need other c- contributors if Oakland was going to avenge that uh, and probably impossible upset from the year before in the World Series at the hands of the Dodgers. And here's the thing. Oakland can hit, but it really was the pitching that made up the difference with the loss of Conseco. They had the number one staff in the American League that year. It wasn't even really close. Bob Welch, the former Dodger, who had problems with cocaine in the early uh, 80s. He's now clean. He's pitching with a purpose and a plan. He wins 17 games, finishes with an ERA of three. Free agent pickup that year, Mike Morey goes 19-11 with a 2.61 ERA, a 1.42 ERA plus. Hometown boy Dave Stewart, he's one of the most dominant pitchers in the late 80s, early 90s. And he's probably one of the uh, most overlooked pitchers of his generation, for sure. Maybe all time. I'm not here to lead like this Stewart to Cooperstown train. That's a little bit of a stretch, but he is about as good as you can get without getting in. Kind of like, you know, former Giants pitcher Tim Lincecum. Both of them were these, like, shooting stars across our baseball universe. And the dominance ends, but we never forget the dominant times, right? So, all right, I tell you what. Oakland native, you know, and this the, the events here is going to have an impact on Dave Stewart. We're going to get into that in a little bit. Let's take a look at Dave Stewart's numbers Real quick, from 1989. Now, 
The first thing about Stu, four straight seasons, he went 20 and 13, 21 and 12, 21 and 9, and 22 and 11. During that stretch, he led all AL pitchers twice in starts, pit, uh, complete games, batter space. He was a horse. And the closest he came to winning a Cy Young in that span was 1989. He, he came in second in that vote that year. Even more peculiar, he only makes uh, one all-star team. Okay? So, I hear some of you. Winston determined a side winner. And, and on some level, I agree with that. But you look at the four-year span, and he is among the best doing it in the American League. I don't care what anyone says. He got hosed. One all-star appearance is pathetic. 84 wins in four years, folks. That's a lot of wins. In four years, that's a ton 84 wins in two and four years from a pitcher is a ton. So let's see here. Dave Stewart, 1989, 36 starts, led the league, 21 and 9 with a 3.68 ERA, eight complete games, 257 and two thirds innings pitched, 205 strikeouts, 105 walks issued. He faced 1,081 batters in 1989, and that led all of baseball. A 3.59 FIP. A 1.27 whip and a 112 ERA plus. So you can see here with Jose on the shelf, it was the pitching staff that made that fucking A's machine roll. And it was led by Still. And that really made up the difference for losing Kinsenko that year uh, for two-thirds of the season. They had the game's most dominant closer in the game, arguably the second greatest ever in baseball history. Dennis Eckersley at 33 saves, ridiculous 1.56 ERA that year. The bridge from the rotation to Eck, you know, it's stout. You got Todd Burns, Gene Nelson, Rick Honeycutt. They're stabilizing the bully. And, of course, you got manager Tony La Russa, whose elite bullpen strategy would change the game forever. And he's in the dugout pulling the strings. So, with that staff, you don't need much offense. But even without Conseco, the A's were the fourth, fourth most powerful offense in the league that year. They made up for this loss of power with their wheels. Third baseman, Cody Lancer, he stole 37 bags that year. People forget about Cody Lancer. That dude could ball. The A's would also trade for Ricky Henderson from the Yankees. And he would anchor that lead stick spot, of course. Steal 52 bases for Oakland. And he would finish with a 425 OPP, OBP in an Oakland uniform. Dave Parker. We've talked about him many times on Backwards K-Pod. He would also supply power for the Conseco Void as he cracks 22 home runs and 97 ribs that year. The A's pretty much played well from day one as the opening of the schedule had them feasting on these weaker AL East teams. The only exception to them beating up on these East teams in the first month was when they took 4-6 from the Angels, who all that year they're perceived as a contender. The Royals, Rangers, Halos, all those teams were very good that year. All of them. And the truth is, all four of those teams, including Oakland, they would have been leading the East if that was their division. The pendulum had now swung out West as the balance of power in the American League. Uh, and this is after decades of ALE supremacy. So, 
Oakland struggled in June with a little hookup. They played uh, below 500, which included losing six of ten home games against Kansas City, Texas, and the Angels. The A's record was a solid 52 and 36, but they were still a game and a half behind the Halos, like a couple of green and yellow ninjas, and they got the Royals and the Rangers giving chase to them. By August, Kinsenka was back, full power, and on the 11th, they are now tied for first place with the Angels, just in time for a trip to the Big A for a weekend showdown with their rivals. Mike Moore gets the ball, game one, masterfully pitches a complete game, shut out 5 nothing with Tony Phillips, Terry Steinbach, and that Connie Lancer dude pacing the, uh, the A's offensive attack. Uh, the A's will win the second game, Big Mac drops Dong in the 8th, uh, they closed the game. Uh, it was a close game at that time. They they run away from the Angels 8-3. to three. So, with first place guaranteed once they leave town, uh, the third game, the rubber match, the Angels behind Hall of Fame pitcher Burt Blylevin. They beat Oakland and Dave Stewart 4-3. But there's little doubt that there was a seismic momentum shift. And, you know, pardon the pun. And it was now in Oakland's favor. The Angels begin to fade. By Labor Day, the Royals are two and a half out. The Angels are fading at four and a half games back. Coming out of Labor Day, the A's had the Red Sox at home. After an 8-5 loss to Boston, the Athletics rebounded for the loss. They kicked Roger Clemens in the package in Game 2. They beat him silly 13-1. Dave Parker hit a grand slam in the rubber match. That sparked a 75 victory. Snatched the series and the A's then go into the Bronx and take two of three from the Yankees, and they expand their lead to a comfortable four and a half games. This is coming out of Labor Day, right? They had a little stumble after returning home from Boston, which may have given the Royals and the Rangers like this uh, blind hope. But, yeah, look, it's false hope. As the pitching and the hitting in conjunction with one another, it's just too much for these poor American League teams to contain. The A's take three or four from the Twins, and it's obvious the West can't keep up with these dudes as they win the pennant by five and a half games. La Rosa, La Rosa, he took the A's, no nonsense, working like approach into the ALCS versus the Blue Jays, uh, who had edged the wide-out Orioles on Game 162. Toronto appears to have Oakland on the ropes many times in that series, but the oil, the, uh, the A's would spoil all their plans at every turn, and they would take the ALCS in five games. And folks, before we get to the frightening of reality of where we're headed, I just want to say, I remember games one and two and the beginning of game three vividly. I can see those games as clear as you can see anything that's next to you right now. The summer of 1989 is my favorite summer ever. I'm 18 years old. I'm not yet a man, but not quite a boy. I fell in love for the first time that summer. I'm a very frivolous 18-year-old you know, I'm living this lifestyle of an 18-year-old frivolous kid, right? I work hard, but I play even harder as I'm beginning to now assert independence in my life. Within one year of Game 3, I'm going to be joining the United States Navy. And maybe it's why I can remember those games in that World Series so clearly. It really was like this last summer being a kid for me. But here's the thing. And I know I watch games, uh, the, the Game 3 makeup and Game 4. I know for a fact I mean, 
It's what I've done all my life. The World Series is on, I watch it, nothing comes first. But, for the life of me, I can't remember anything about Games 3 and 4. Except, the last out of that series, and Eck with that classic upper cut fist pump. Uh, when I went back and rewatched the games, it shocked me. But that was the case. I, I'd love to know what you guys remember about that day, that series. Do you remember anything after that tragic game three? Did you even care at that point? Drop me a line. So, that's where my headspace was as an 18-year-old. With literally my whole life in front of me when this goes down. I told you, I was a huge Conseco mark. I had his posters, like I said, all over my walls. At this point, he is probably my favorite player in the game. So, I'm pulling for him to avenge that loss before, you know, the year before against uh, L.A. And I'm very excited to watch this matchup between these two teams that, even to this day, I've always admired and respected. And if the A's win, that's awesome. If the Giants win, I'm good with that because, you know, Will Clark, he's a gamer. That's a man's man right there. I love that dude. And when I was really young, my grandfather used to tell me how his Dodgers, they, you know, they played in New York back in the day. And every once in a while, they would get the opportunity to let the Yankees smack them around in the World Series. And that always fascinated me as a kid. Two teams playing from New York against one another for the title. So... The fact that after 47 years of sharing this region and shit is about to pop off between these two. I mean, just the fact that that was the case, this World Series had me hooked, blind, and sinker. I'm all in. So, the Battle of the Bay is about to jump off. The Oakland A's versus the San Francisco Giants. What do I remember about games one and two the most? After all these years later, I remember the total dominance of Oakland and the embarrassing failure of the Giants to even make it competitive. Game one in Oakland saw a starting pitcher Dave Stewart pitch nine innings of five hit shutout ball. Both Will Clark and Kevin Mitchell, they went two for four, but only Jose Uribe would get the only other Giants hit that day. The A's, on the other hand, they, uh, well, they abused Scott Geralt's. They bent him over, and it wasn't pretty. The, uh, Geralt's, he only goes four innings. He surrenders four runs. Two of those runs are created by home runs off the bat of Dave Parker and shortstop Walt Weiss, one of your more unlikely home run hitters ever in World Series history. Game two again. Saw the A's merciless, mercilessly take it to the Giants. As the A's take a commanding 2 to nothing lead after a 5-1 victory. Against Mike Moore, the, the, the Giants' bats, they shrunk again. This time, they managed to get four, four hits off of Moore, but the only run they scored was on a sack fly by Robbie Thompson to plate Uribe. The A's, meanwhile, they're firing on all cylinders. The speed, Ricky goes 3-for-3, three three, including a triple and a run. The power... Terry Stomp, Steinbach, he drops three-run dong on Rick Russell's lips in the fourth. The pitching, well, it's just how LaRusa drew it up. More to Honeycutt to Eckersley, done deal. Last person out, please turn out the lights. With the series now shifting to San Francisco, and with the Giants in a 2 nothing hole, I'm sure in the back of the Giants player's mind, 
they're like, how do we contain this Oakland machine and get back in this series? A 2 nothing lead is it's still negotiable. Many teams have gone on to win Game 3 and come back in that scenario. If San Francisco loses Game 3, it's going to be extremely hard to beat the Powerful A's four straight games. It's going to be almost impossible. Game 3, October 17th, 1989. Game 3 of a so far very one-sided World Series. The Bay Region is on fire. And there's this mixture of San Francisco angst and Oakland brashness. The kids at school in both of these markets, they're rambunctious as many of them are going to watch the game after school. The other ones are rushing home to watch it. There is an epidemic of phantom sickness call-ins to get out of work that day in the, in the region. Many employees plead with their bosses to let them out early. And the average 1989 Giants fan is still optimistic going into Game 3. They think the boys can turn it around at the stick. So, at 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the television audience is beginning to tune in. And the fans at the stick are still falling in, but the diehards are at their seats. They're ready to roll. The stadium is a good three-quarters packed by now, and it's continuously filling up. Which, okay, that was by the grace of a higher power. And I'm going to explain my take on that later. At around 5.01, ABC Sports brings up a view of beautiful downtown San Francisco and a shot of the majestic Candlestick Park filling up with fans. And we see Al Michaels come on in the screen, welcoming everyone in the audience to the 1989 World Series. He then goes in... You know, this little intro, diatribe, laying out the 2-0 series storylines. And then he gives his color analyst, Tim McCarver, the floor. Now, McCarver begins going through his spiel. And you see a highlight on the screen where Conseco scores off of a Dave Parker double in Game 2. And all of a sudden, the TV connection begins to scramble. The video begins to flicker. And... The audio is beginning to get choppy. And you hear an animated Al Michael say, in the middle of the choppiness, that uh, something that sounded like we're having an earthquake. And all of a sudden, as soon as he said that, no video feed, no audio, no nothing. Everything goes black on the TV screen, except for eventually a station ID appears on the screen. This is all happening live. So... In my brain, there's kind of like this confusion. As I'm trying to process what I had seen and what I thought I had heard, I turn to my dad, I, I ask him, did he say earthquake? And my father turns to me to answer, and then Al Michaels comes back on the screen, so he doesn't say anything. We both look back on the TV. But with no video, uh, you hear Al Michaels say, well, folks, that was the greatest intro in TV history, bar none. And that's the clip in the beginning of the show. He then goes on to confirm that they indeed just experienced a mighty earthquake, and none of the video is up. But he understood that people could hear him, so he says, let's go to commercial, and I'm not sure if we'll be here when we come back. And the whole time, if you listen to the clip, you can hear the Giants fans roaring in the background. Many of these guys, uh, you know, they
it felt like this was an, an omen, a warning to the A's that this is San Francisco and we can survive anything and we're going to kick your ass tonight, Oakland. The fans are ready to roll. They're ready to play baseball after this uh, seismic force runs through the stick. And even years later, Michaels himself admits that he was caught up in the chaos at first. And after the adrenaline wore off, he, that's when he began to get concerned. And I'm at home flipping out as the TV now goes to my market ABC News feed, which was Ted Cobble from World News Tonight. And you have to remember, folks, there, there's no cell phones in 1989, no social media, nowhere you can put up one of those posts saying that I survived the earthquake, I'm okay. So inside the stadium, it was scary, especially the higher you were in a stick. But the general consensus, uh, consensus was, hey, that was scary, we survived, everything is going to be okay, let's play ball. At some point, the fans began to chant, let them play, play ball. And you can't knock them. They're, they're, they're oblivious to the destruction that was unleashed on the region. Again, no Facebook, no Twitter, no cell phones. We weren't connecting with one another in, in these times. One of the men inside the stick that day was terrified. And he left the building as soon as he was able. And I sure, I, I, I'm, I'm positive looking at this dude as he's really telling the story. He walked out of the stadium, he went home, and he probably did a couple of bong hits. This kid's name at the time was Benji, uh, Benji Young. He worked as a stagehand at the stick. And there were these, uh, you know, like wind sacks caught up in one of the light extensions that rose above the stick hundreds of feet. So the Giants saw him go up there, climb that ladder, and get those uh, those wind sacks down. So Benji's going up there, and he's about three quarters of the way up the high imposing structure, and he's on this ladder that kind of runs up the side of the lights. And at 5:04, 15, the stadium begins to sway. And Will Clark said it looked like the upper deck and the second deck were somehow doing the wave around the stadium. And by the time it got to him, it damn near knocked him over. Now, he said later, I'm a Louisiana boy. I ain't never dealt with anything like this in my life. Now, at the same time that Will is watching the upper deck through the wave, Benji Young is hundreds of feet above the stadium, holding on for dear life, and he's convinced he's going to die. The light extensions were moving in wave-like motions. He called it. He said it looked like spaghetti. Up and down, side to side, over the stadium, over the parking lot, over the stadium. And he's squeezing the ladder with everything he has. Like, his life depends on it, which it does. And he remembers looking up and seeing a plane dragging a banner behind it. And his first thought was that the banner had got stuck in the lights and the plane was going to drag him down to his death. 17 seconds felt like a lifetime. When the quake had quieted, he promptly got down and left the stadium grateful to be alive. Thankfully... Candlestick kept her poised. She didn't buckle. There were cracks in parts of the stadium. People from the upper deck were leaving uh, the stick with chunks of concrete as souvenirs 
of that scary day. A part of the Hamstick Park you're holding. Right. We got these three pieces in a pile up there in the upper deck. In your estimation, does it look unsafe up there? It's unsafe. And he's telling you, it's unsafe. But look, it could have been much worse. An absolute disaster. When Candlestick was built in 1958, San Francisco had... They really didn't have much seismic uh, activity since 1908 when they experienced the big one, the 7.9 on the Richter scale. Now, city engineers at the time in the 50s, they were limited in their knowledge of earthquakes and the impact they have on man-made structures such as houses, skyscrapers, bridges, and yes, stadiums. The stick was a reinforced concrete oval structure, which... It actually moved a lot on any given day, depending on weather and environmental changes. And this oval structure, Candlestick Park, if you were to look down on it from a bird's eye view, you would see it's built in eight different pieces to shape around the bowl. Now, during an earthquake, the eight different pieces move in different directions and they collide with each other. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just kind of happens naturally. In hindsight, we've learned that that's not bad construction to earthquake-proof a building. As long as there is no inner decay on the concrete. Or if there isn't enough reinforced steel in the structure. If there is decay, or not enough reinforcement, then one of those eight pieces of structure colliding with each other, there is serious danger of concrete cracking, and that's going to cause the steel to warp and crumble like aluminum foil. In 1983... The Giants found that Candlestick did, in fact, have inner decay. Whoever had dry pack the last time, they did a really poor job, and the concrete was decaying on the inside. So, the Giants immediately went to city officials. They told them, look, this is bad, it's really bad, and it needs to be fixed. So, earlier in 1989, the city appropriated the funds to renovate the interior of the concrete, make it safe. Now, the Giants were thankfully ahead of schedule as work was almost completed by the World Series in 1989. Had that work not been completed, it could have been a whole other story about that fucking day. Anyone in that compromised bowl any year before 1989 would have been in serious danger of being crushed or falling to their death in the same type of ferocious earthquake scenario. Now, at this time, if you look on the field, many players are standing on the pitcher's mound. Family members of the players, they're shook. And they are admitted onto the field to be with their husbands. At this time, there's no electricity at the stick. She is virtually dead in the water. The San Francisco uh, Police Department Commander Isaiah Nelson, uh, a true hero that day, he never lost his composure. He kept everyone calm. He grabbed some microphone, and along with baseball commissioner Ray Vincent, they informed the fans the game has been postponed. You're going to have to leave the stadium in a safe and orderly manner before it gets dark. There's no electricity in here. So, the players and the coaches, they didn't even bother to shower or even take their uniform or their cleats off. They all gathered their families and proceeded to walk out of the building just like the fans. At first... Inside the stadium, it didn't seem so bad, but news was starting to circulate around the ballpark that 
The quake registered 6.9 on the Richter scale, and parts of both Oakland and San Francisco were destroyed and on fire. As the fans left the stick with the players, reality begins to set in as they walk over broken glass and they can see the smoke from all the fires. The rest of the national audience was watching in near real time, which was rare back in the day, considering 24-hour news cycles, you know, it's a fairly new concept back then. Even people who were not tuning in to watch the World Series, they're now watching the news unfold before their eyes. So, as we hear the sounds of World Series ballplayers in their cleats, uh, skipping across the concrete parking lot, walking their loved ones to the car, and leaving the stadium, many of those players and coaches, they spent hours trying to get to safety. Uh, especially Oakland. They got to get, you know, they got to get back across the bay. Well, you know, we're going to find out that that's going to be a challenge to get across the bay. Uh, so, you know, Electricity's out. Buildings are either collapsed or, uh, you know, near disrepair. Gas mains had burst in both San Francisco and Oakland, and it's starting massive fire in both of these cities. And it's then that horrifying details about the Bay Bridge collapse begin to leak out. The Goodyear blimp was covering the World Series from above when the quake happened. Pilot John Craner was almost immediately contacted after it by the ABC Sports production truck. They asked him how he was on fuel. He said he had plenty. After all, I mean, he was going to need fuel to cover the whole baseball game. The game didn't even start. So, the the truck tells him, you stay up there and fly as far as you can go. Give us back pictures without compromising your full, full fuel reserves. And it was Craner giving the national audience the scope of the devastation in real time from a bird's eye view. He flies above the Bay Bridge and everybody in America sees the impossible. The Bay Bridge, you know, this double-tiered structure and as the blimp, it runs over the bay. So as the blimp begins to hover over it, the nation sees a huge 76-foot by 50-foot section of the upper deck on the eastern cantilever side it had fallen onto the bottom deck of the bridge. The quake caused the Oakland side of the bridge to shift seven inches to the east, which then in turn caused the bolts of one section to completely shear off from the torque and the pressure. That sent 500,000 pounds of roadbed and bridge to crash down to the bottom level. And it kind of falls in like a trapdoor fashion. You, uh, the kind of trapdoor you might see in a cage when you hunt like feral cats or, or groundhogs or whatever. Traffic on both sides, uh, on both levels, I'm sorry, they come to a halt, as you can imagine. The bottom level is trapped, and the upper level had a 50-foot hole in it. And after much chaos, policemen and other emergency workers began to show up. And they begin the scary chore of clearing the bridge. A miscommunication by emergency workers at the Yerba Buena Island mistakenly rerouted some drivers the wrong way. They sent them eastward towards the collapse. One of those drivers, Anamafai Moala, she must be a Hawaiian lady. Uh, she did not see the open gap in time, and her car flew over the edge of the gap. Smashing the nose first on the bottom level, killing her instantly, 
Her brother was seriously injured, but he survived. And by this time, the Bay Bridge is broke. You know, the World Series is an all but forgotten thought. Any afterthought that game would, uh, any thought that that game would go on was quickly dispelled as soon as you saw the Bay Bridge was broken. San Francisco ABC News 7 reporter Leslie Brinkley was on the bridge a mere 30 seconds before the crash. And uh, this is her story of what she saw and heard that day. Let me see if I can find this real quick. Here it is. We were driving over the Bay Bridge when the earthquake struck. It's been a frightening scene here. As you can see just below me is where this crack in the Bay Bridge occurred, a 50-foot section. You see down there below the two cars, two cars that were on the upper deck when the bridge collapsed. We were just floored by what we were seeing. Things were so much worse than we expected them to be. We were shocked at the outcome of some of the structures that we learned that um, we needed to design bridges differently. Designed a bridge that could last 150 years. That bridge can withstand the biggest earthquake motions that would happen in a 1500-year period. It was a normal news day. We left the station, got onto the bridge. We're headed for a Caltrans meeting on the Oakland side. We're talking. All of a sudden, it felt like our truck was on a trampoline uh, or tires had blown. It was just moving in every direction, up and down, side to side. And that was right at 5.04 p.m. Looking out our windows all around us were dirt, crumbles of little rocks falling down, raining down onto our truck. And we were not quite processing anything except it's an earthquake, the bridge is shaking hard, let's get off of it if we can. We managed to drive off the bridge and pull off to the side of the road. Uh, there were lots of other people pulled off and at that point we got out of the vehicle, I put my foot on the ground and an aftershock hit. It was an amazing sensation. It was one thing to experience the quake inside the truck and the motion of that. It was yet another to put your feet on the earth and feel it move. But it was the moment we pulled off and started talking to some other drivers that had pulled off when one driver told me that he saw in his rearview mirror what looked like a big concrete garage door slamming down behind him. And that point, we realized the Bay Bridge broke. We understand from the Caltrans folks that the top portion, that 50-foot portion you saw before, did collapse onto the bottom of the Bay Bridge. We understand that two cars that were driving on the top also fell with that piece. The thought of just missing that has never left me. 30 seconds earlier, I might have been where that piece of the bridge collapsed. I mean, just scary stuff. But still... Uh, the scariest disaster of the earthquake was the total collapse of the Cypress Street viaduct of Interstate 880 in West Oakland, also known as the Cypress Freeway. Uh, it's uh, It, too, was a double-decked freeway. It's made of reinforced concrete. At 5.04, the earthquake hit. The freeway buckled and twisted. 
before the support columns failed, and it caused the upper deck for over a mile and a half to collapse on the lower deck. 500 metric tons of concrete and rubble. The cars on the upper deck, for over a mile and a quarter, they're thrown around like pesky fleas on a cat's back. Some of them nearly flip off the top level, and they're left precariously hanging over the edge of the freeway. Uh, it was then that you saw something that would become a common theme for the next few weeks in the region. And that was ordinary people doing extraordinary things. The citizens of Oakland, they scrambled to the freeway before most emergency workers arrived as they were spread out thin throughout the region. And these people, all races, genders, religions, uh, sexual identities, favorite baseball team, they're actually climbing between the loose crevices and the collapsed structure looking for people. They actually found one car. And this is a crazy story. The driver and the passenger were flattened. They lied dead in the front seat. But there's a baby barely alive in the back seat. So people are screaming, is there a doctor around? We found a baby. And a gentleman comes out. Let me look at my notes here. A Dr. James Betts. Uh... Dr. James Betts. He identifies himself as a doctor. Uh, He looks at the baby. And one of his legs had been almost pancake smashed. He he decides, I can save this baby, but we're going to have to amputate his leg right here, right now. So, this guy, probably been waiting for the World Series all day. He's probably having a great day. He's now in the most unenviable position of taking this baby's leg. He ties a tourniquet around the boy's leg and he begins to amputate the leg in the bowels of the collapsed bridge. They take the boy to the hospital. He, he Eventually he gets in stable condition later in the day and he's going to survive. Well, later that evening a man shows up at the hospital claiming they may have found his son on the Cypress Freeway. And Dr. Benz is a little confused because he's, he thought that the two individuals who had died in the car, those were his parents. So they take the man to see the boy. And as soon as the father sees him, he says the boy's name. And he begins to cry and hold him. I mean, just a crazy story. Another story from that freeway disaster is one about the uh, local fireman, local Oakland fireman, Tim Peterson. Uh, Tim's got off work. He's hurrying home to watch the World Series. At around 5.02, he thinks to himself, man, everyone is at the park. Traffic is light. I'm making great time. I'm not far from my house. I'm going to make the first inning. And side note, again, another act of the grace of a higher power. Whatever you want to call that entity, I call it God, you call it whatever you want. Because the game is about to start, because the game is about to begin, the streets and bridges in both Oakland and San Francisco, they're relatively empty for what should have been rush hour traffic. So, as Tim is racing down to Cyprus, he looks to his right, attractive lady in a BMW, he looks to his left, he sees a landscaping pickup work truck. And all of a sudden, the clock hits 504.15, and Tim 
begins to feel the sensation like all four of his wheels went flat at the same time. And his car becomes hard to control. So he looks to his right. He sees the lady fighting with her steering wheel as well. And she careens out of control. Still confused, he looks to his left. The driver of the truck is struggling with control. And then, boom! He smashed into vapor. Adds the top fell onto the truck, killing the driver and flattening the car down to about 27 inches. So, all of a sudden, Tim is stuck. His shoulders and his back are broke. He looks at his ankles, which are pointing in opposite directions at this point. Uh, they're clearly broke. The steering wheel is jammed into his ribs. And all around, uh, fires start to break out. You know, uh, the, from gas being, you know, crushed from this weight over top. Uh, he hears horns glaring continuously from victims, you know, heads on the horn. He hears cars revving. You know, the drivers are obviously dead with body parts still, you know, on the gas at this point. Little by little. It begins to get quiet around him after a few hours. He hears nothing. And he knows he's in a bad way. This might be the end. Well, just as I told you, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Everyday people were risking their lives, climbing into any crevice they could find in the freeway to find survivors. Suddenly, a light flashes across Tim's face. And he begins to yell as his survival instincts, instincts begin to kick in again. And the person on the other end he says, hold on, buddy, I'm going to get some firemen in here to figure out how to get you out. Just hang on. So the dude leaves, and Tim is patiently waiting, confident that he's going to survive. And just as he promised, the brave civilian comes back with firemen. Now check this out. One of, the, one of those firemen was his father, Dave, who worked for the fire department as well. And he was already searching there through the rubble for survivors. And Tim remembers that he began to sob when he saw his dad take command of the rescue effort. Seeing his father, it gave him the strength to live. And once he saw his father, Tim said everything was good. Seeing him made everything that happened okay. And to this day, Tim considers October 17th, 1989, Eminem's birthday, by the way, he considers that his real birthday because of this second chance of life that day. And on and on and on, these stories are beginning to be told in real time. And as an outsider, you couldn't help but admire these two cities. You got civilians fighting fires, escorting people to safety, running into burning, collapsing buildings. Everywhere you look, all you saw were real, everyday American heroes fighting to keep their cities safe. It's been since dubbed the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. The shock was centered in Santa Cruz County on a section of the San Andreas Fault and was named for the nearby Loma Prieta peaks in the Santa Cruz Mountains. The shock was responsible, uh, the, way was, uh, the earthquake was responsible for 63 deaths, 3,757 injuries, and folks, I'm going to tell you, that's amazing when you look at the total devastation to the region. The Loma Prieta segment of the San Andreas Fault, it had been relatively dormant since 1906. The damage was heavy in Santa Cruz, Monterey County, 
San Francisco Bay and the peninsula, as well as the extensive damage in the Marina District and across the bay into Oakland. Most of the severe damage in the region was due to unstable soil. Now, the Marina District, for example, suffered major property damage because of what's called liquefaction of soil, which is the scientific way to say the, the, the soil turns into quicksand. Other effects from this phenomenon were sand volcanoes, landslides, massive ground rupture. Some 12,000 homes and 2,600 businesses were damaged. So, many lives affected both physically, psychologically, what should have been a great time in the Bay Area turned into a total nightmare. And thankfully, the region learned valuable lessons because of this tragedy. The quake changed the automobile and transportation landscape in the Bay Area. The quake forced engineers to employ seismic retrofitting of all Bay Area bridges. And even Oracle Park was built with a better understanding of earthquake-proofing large man-made structures. And, side note here, at some point, we're going to be covering the construction of the Giants' current crib, the Palatial Oracle Park, here in 2023. And, the engineers and architects of this baseball cathedral, they had a better understanding about earthquakes after 1999. Not only in, you know, necessary materials needed for construction, but also a better understanding of construction atop of former landfills, and how the soil in these Areas in particular go through this liquefaction process during large quakes. And I have a general understanding of how the earth literally turns into collapsing quicksand, but I ain't Mr. Professor. So maybe you want to check that process out for yourself and not rely on my word. It's called liquefaction. And Oracle is truly a marvel of engineering. The ball sits on a ball bearing track that sits under the circumference of the stadium. Unlike Candlestick, where you had like these eight separate pieces of the stadium banging into each other, with that ball-bearing system, the stadium swivels gently back and forth on its track should San Francisco absorb mighty seismic shock. And look, stay tuned for these stadium shows that are coming. From the oldest to the most current stadiums, I've been able to cover, you know, Fenway Park to uh, the White Sox crib, Guaranteed Ray Field. And we're going to be resuming our stadium coverage in two months, starting with the next stadium in line, Oriel Park at Camden Yards. If you haven't heard any of those stadium shows, including your throwback cribs and polo grounds, Crosley Field, Shine Park, you need to check those out for sure. And I have plenty more stadium shows on the 2023 schedule. Uh, you can find those shows wherever you listen to your pods, or check those shows out and more at diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. So, in the aftermath of the Loma Prieta earthquake, the Bay Area has made a concerted effort to nail everything down and rely on science. Most bridges and freeways, they've been upgraded to prevent deadly collapse. All of them have, in fact. And, you know, they did this to, you know, prevent this from ever happening again under the most intense seismic pressures. But, I digress. Remember, there's still a World Series going on. There's only been two games. And Major League Baseball had questions now. If and when they should resume the series. Some people thought, you know what, man? 
Don't even worry about it. We'll just go without the share. But the Giants are busy at work repairing any damage caused by the quake in the days after that uh, that fateful that, that night. And while the series is put on hold with Oakland still holding a 2 nothing advantage, Will Clark often said it was kind of weird running through drills and candlestick waiting for the series to resume and you had these jackhammers and power saws in the background uh, while you're taking batting practice and drills. And a side note here, 57 of those deaths in the aftermath of the disaster, they were directly caused by the quake. Six other deaths were ruled to have been caused indirectly. Of the 3,757 injured that day, 400 of them were serious. The highest number of deaths occurred at the Cypress Viaduct collapse that I told you about. They had 42 deaths. So, you know, 21 people died in other parts of the region. And folks, uh, this could have been so much worse. Now, I'm not going to turn this into a, a Jimmy Swaggered pod. But people always ask, where's the proof of higher power presence? Or as I call it, the, you know, the presence of God. Well, folks, the proof is all around you. Look, thankfully, the Dodgers figured out a few years before uh, that that stadium concrete was compromised with inner decay, and they began working on it in earnest at the beginning of 1989. No one in the stadium was seriously injured. And let's talk about that for just a second. The Candlestick Park was probably one of the safest places to be in San Francisco that day. When the quake hit at 504.15, over 60,000 fans were in the park. All things considered, safest place to be. Lives were actually saved because of that 1989 World Series. Still not buying what I'm selling? How about the fact that the Bay Bridge and the Cypress Aqueduct are usually bumper-to-bumper parking lots during peak rush hours? Five o'clock. The fact that such a large percentage of people were at Candlestick or already nestled in their homes to watch Game 3 saved lives. All you got to do is stop and look around to see the grace of a higher power that day. It could have been so much worse. Not to mention, the national audience is now marveling at the citizens of the region doing amazing things to save lives. Every silver lining has a touch of gray. With a 6.9 magnitude, the tremors dug 12 miles below the Earth's surface. It was caused by what's known as an oblique slip reverse on a fault line that runs parallel to the San Andreas Fault. The Bay Area saw fires that burned for days. The marina district was hit by tsunamis as well as liquefaction of the soil, which caused buildings to collapse. All told, there were about 2,500 landslides reported. Uh, there's about $6 billion in damage in both cities um, and the surrounding suburbs. $6 billion in 1989. It has the purchasing power of about $13.1 billion in the 2023 economy. And again, after all this, it's easy to forget there's still a World Series to be played. Baseball Commissioner Faye Vincent, he went to city officials in both Oakland and San Francisco and the word was given that both stadiums will be safe and ready, and it was determined that the World Series would resume after 10 days. So, December 29th, oh, I'm sorry, October 27th, 1989, Candlestick Park, the World Series resumes. The city of San Francisco has rallied through this tough time. Both cities, they're anxious to take a break from the devastation 
watch their teams play for a world title. Now, because of the 10-day layoff, the A's only used two starters in this sweep. Dave Stewart and Mike Moore. Stewart went game three. And even though the Giants' bats did finally wake up from their slumber, it wasn't a factor as Oakland bats went to another level. The Giants scored 13 runs on nine hits in games three and four. Unfortunately for them, the A's bashed 26 hits and 22 runs in those same final two games of that sweep. The A's smashed five home runs in game three, including two by Hendu, Dave Henderson, produced Four runs in the eighth on five singles in an air. With the Giants supplying two home runs in that game as well, it remains the record for home runs in a single World Series game. In fact, the combined 13 home runs in that series is still the record for a four-game World Series, as well as the four triples and 29 extra base hits. Jesus, that's a lot of base hits in a four-game series. That's a little more than seven a game. But... You know, the A's came out and they just clobbered San Francisco. This is a special city. People have been fantastic. The whole area. There's a drive to deep right center field and that one is gone. Dave Henderson this time gets it over after hitting the top of the fence. In the first inning, this one clears it by a couple of feet in the fourth. In this ballpark than any other part. That one carries very well to right field, and that one is gone off the bat of Phillips. And the giant bullpen is busy. Down three to one in this one in a million series, 
Oakland would finish them off in game four, nine to six. Again, the giant bats showed up, but the A's were just a little better after the 10 day layoff than they were. The last two games were a blur to me to this day. All I remember about game four was that last out. Ricky set the tone with a solo blast in the first, and the Giants never threatened despite the offensive effort of Kevin Mitchell, who dropped two-run dong, and Craig Linton, who also added a two-run shot. But it truly was the most anticlimactic World Series, uh, and it was finally drawing the curtain over the 1989 season with the mighty Oakland A's atop the mountain in the end. And... Again, it's easy to forget the dominance Oakland displayed in that series. They scored first in every game. They never trailed at any point in the series. The uh, the A's set or tie team uh, tied records for triples, home runs, and extra bases in a four-game set. Jose Canseco, he had redeemed his subpar performance in the World Series the year before versus L.A. He batted three fifty seven. He scored five runs. Uh, trading for Ricky paid off as this is around the time when Henderson is probably the most dynamic weapon in the MLB arsenal. He hits 474 in the series. He swipes three bags. Dave Stewart, Mike Moore, they pick up two wins apiece. And Stewart was awarded World Series MVP. And as in any war, the spoils go to the riches. Oakland won the title. But would be upset in the next year World Series, uh, this time against the Reds. After Eckersley made that last out of the, the, the A's return to the clubhouse, and probably the only time you will see a World Series winner in a quiet locker room. The A's didn't pop champagne. There was really nothing to celebrate. Baseball is just a game. They're still looking for bodies in collapsed buildings. The brazen cocky A's, they sat quietly in the locker room looking at one another, exhausted by it all. Uh, winning is supposed to be everything as a pro athlete. Some players admit it. It shouldn't be won like this. But Will Clark has the proper perspective as a member of the Giants team that saw his opportunity slip through his fingers. You work your whole life, you know, to, to get to the highest pinnacle, which is the World Series, and earthquake being involved that was not in the script do I feel a little cheated I feel a little cheated I'm being a little selfish there but at the same time you look back and you go it is a game it is a game I live in San Francisco I work in San Francisco my city is in disarray. There's people who lost their lives. You found out, hey, look, no matter what happens, I'm going to pick up the pieces. And you have a duty that you have to do. Your civic duty. Which is being a human being. Amen, brother, man. I, I hear that, and it just it just touches my soul, man. Series MVP A's pitcher Dave Stewart, he grew up in Oakland, as I told you before. He was a diehard A's fan as a kid. And for two weeks after the quake, Stu would show up every morning at the uh, Cypress Viaduct. Uh, fresh morning coffee and food for the volunteers and emergency workers who are still trying to clean the city. And I think I'm going to let Dave Stewart come in here 
and surmised the horrific disaster and where he saw the region going in the future. When it was all said and done, two sides of the bay that are like day and night found a way to join together and rebuild and heal. Both sides of the bay today are flourishing. They're doing great. And a lot of that started back in 1989. And folks, I think i got to wrap it up right there. There are so many things out there about the 1989 World uh, Earthquake World Series. Uh, I had to lean on Wikipedia a little this week as I tried to dive into how earthquakes work and how they impact buildings and, and, and soil and so many other things. I, I don't usually use that site for the show, but I think uh, this was a different circumstance. You know, I know baseball, science, meh, I usually slept in that class. So Wiki was my friend in learning about the Loma Prieta earthquake of 1989, and I, I implore you, you should probably check it out. All kinds of interviews and articles from the Bay Area newspapers and magazines are available on the net. One of my sources this week, and I highly recommend it. If you want to learn more about this tragedy, go to, uh, you know, it's an ESPN 30 for 30. It's available on Disney+. Plus. It's called The Day the World Series Stopped, and it is a gripping must-see doc if you haven't seen it yet. The Loma Prieta earthquake has been reimagined in song and storytelling. TV sitcom Full House episode entitled Aftershocks and dealt with this moment and the fear a child has of losing their parent. There's a San Francisco-based punk rock band that calls himself Loma Prieta. On December 6, 1989, the Grateful Dead played an earthquake benefit concert at the Oakland Alameda Mausoleum. They also performed the Rodney Kroll song, California Earthquake, on October 20th, 1989 in Filthy, and then again three nights later in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was the only time that Jerry and the boys would perform that song live. So, many things, but something that I just saw recently really captured my imagination. So, Many of you may remember the old 90s show, Quantum Leap, and I love that show. I'm kind of like this time travel buff. If you haven't noticed, uh, any show that resembles, you know, time travel stories, I'm in. I'm going to check it out. Well, Quantum Leap has a reboot now, and it's really fucking good. In the reboot season, uh, season one, episode six, our new leaper, Dr. Benjamin Song, he leaps into San Francisco October 17, 1989 at about 5.01 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So, just minutes before all hell breaks loose, right? So, if you're a Quantum Leap fan like myself, you gotta check this reboot out, especially when you, uh, uh, when he leaps into Loma Prieta Earthquake. And... How about that 2004 video game, Grand Theft Auto, where one location uh, resembles the collapsed Cypress Street Viaduct? So, man, go to YouTube. You can watch this horror unfold as there are literally hours and hours of video. Thank you guys for coming out for our first show in 2023. It's our longest show I've ever done. I'm sorry about that, but you know, this is something you gotta get right, you know? And I, I don't I'm not I don't live in California, so I wanted to make sure that everything is on fucking point. I hope you enjoyed listening as as much as I enjoyed retelling it. And with that, the New Year shows has officially begun. So 
I chopped the head off our baseball hydro, only to see two more baseball topics grow back in its place. With a 1989 Earthquake Series in my rearview mirror, I turn my steely eye focus on next week's topic when I dig in to the history of baseball mascots. That sounds like a fun show, from Mr. Matt to the San Diego Chicken to the Phillies Fanatic and all the others. I can't wait to explore the world of baseball mascots. But look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents in the audience, good brothers and sisters, if you see your kids sitting on the couch looking bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless. Happy New Year and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillenbrand told me in our one-on-one interview a few months ago, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. Peace out, Seamheads.